session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get into the book of the week from last week, the book of the week for this week is Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, and the new research that's rewriting the story by Angela Saini, S-A-I-N-I, Angela I hope I'm saying that right, Angela Saini. Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story. I'm actually very excited to read this book, of course, judging it by its cover and some things I read about it. Uh, But looking at how research had pinned women as being an inferior sex, but that's not true, but how this legacy has still, um, it still is alive and well, unfortunately. And so looking forward to reading this book. I actually got another book looking at the neuroscience of men and women and how they might not be so different. Uh, So that book I'll probably read a little, maybe put a little bit of gap between this one and that one. But the book of the week is Inferior by Angela Saini. Looking forward to sharing that with you probably next Wednesday, I think, because Monday will be a holiday here in the national state, uh, the United States, so I probably won't be doing a show. Okay, so the book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about tonight is The New Mind Readers, What Neuroimaging Can and Cannot Reveal About Our Thoughts by Russell A. Poldrack. The New Mind Readers. And uh, this was a very interesting book, fascinating book, in a way at first just outlining um, the history of imaging or brain imaging and how the science evolved and developed and how now the most commonly used type of uh, imaging of the brain that's used in research is fMRI or functional magnetic resonance imaging um, resonance imaging and uh, the history itself was kind of interesting for me because I of course had heard of fMRI research and how it's helpful but didn't know much about the history so that was interesting and also the history of how it developed and the science to be honest it's hard for me to repeat some of it or really totally understand it but it was interesting to see um, how it works and exactly what it's measuring because we simplify it or at least i've always looked at it and thinking this is just when we see an image so you maybe have seen images online of a brain and certain areas are maybe colored red or green or different colors to show that these are the active areas Uh, and we just take that in a way for granted that okay that means those areas are active but it's a very complex uh, science first of all measuring it so they're not really measuring brain activity for sure but really more blood flow or blood flow in that area Um, so they're not actually measuring the neurons of the brain and there's 
science that tries to do that, and he talked a bit about that as well. Um, but then also the ways they even create those images involves a lot of times uh, a lot of statistics and different types of sciences to understand how to make that happen. So again, a lot of that is above my head as far as being able to explain it, but it was interesting seeing uh, really how complicated and complex these things are when they're trying to get images of the brain. Because before, really, the only way they would be able to study the brain or the human brain was to wait for people to die and then try to look at them. And actually, when I talked about the book, um, what was it, last week? Barbara Lipska's book about the neuroscientist who lost her mind. And she worked in the brain bank where they would get brains of people who had died and look at them in different ways uh, and dissect them or um, put them into different slices so they can be studied. But here, what we also want to do is not just study the brains and its structures, because if you just have a brain, all you can do is look at the different parts, really. But we want to see how it functions. And to study the function, we have to be able to see how the brain is firing or what parts of the brain are firing and in what ways when people are doing different actions. And so that's what the fMRI tries to do. The F part, the functional part, means that we're measuring the brain at a certain point in time or essentially in a point in time. And so he talked about in imaging how we have to look at two different issues, which is the temporal resolution and the spatial resolution. So spatial resolution means how sharp essentially the picture is, how detailed we can be. So if I just tell you the brain is active, that's not telling you much. Or if I just tell you the left hemisphere is active, that's not saying much. But the sharpness in the, the sense of the spatial resolution means I can tell you detailed these neurons or this specific area of the brain is active. And that's very important. And then the other part that's important is the temporal resolution, meaning the temporal res resolution means time. So if I tell you it was active at this second, that's much better than if I can tell you it was active in the last hour. So when we look at different ways of imaging the brain, those are two of the aspects we are looking at. An fMRI at this time seems to be the best that we can do. But he talks about in this book, uh, the strengths of it, again, the history, how it was developed, but also the limitations, which I thought, uh, which is always good when we're looking at something from a scientific perspective. We don't always just look at the good parts. We want to make sure we understand the weaknesses or also where it can be improved or where it might not even be right. And so that's why I liked the subtitle of the book, as I mentioned before, I think last week, what neuroimaging can and cannot reveal about our thoughts, because uh, what they're doing, the science is great, but they're very limited as well. And so throughout the book, he does share the advancements of the science and neuroscience and what it's telling us, but also tries to make it very clear what it can't do. And in that sense, also telling us to be mindful of hearing messages where someone might say, because of these brain images, we can tell this, this, or the other thing and making conclusions that really scientists can't make confidently at this time. And that's very important for us to keep in mind, as all of us are consumers of science. We all get bombarded with different types of studies, from whether diet or exercise or psychology or the brain or different medications or drugs or vaccines. We're constantly getting exposed to many different types of research and we have to be consumers ourselves. We have to try to hear and read the articles and see if we can make sense of them. And so in the book, he actually does 
give a lot of tools or ways of looking at research, especially when it comes to neuroscience research, that make, can make us more aware and better consumers of the science, some of which I'll touch on um, as I talk about the book. So he covers various different aspects uh, of neuroimaging of fMRI. There's some interesting points I wanted to share with you. The book itself, relatively shorter, about 184 pages, I believe, but really a lot of information. So I would highly recommend it, but I'll share some different parts with you that I thought were quite fascinating. So one part was about um, people who are in comas. And so it's long been wondered, do they have any conscious awareness they're unresponsive, but does that mean they don't hear anything or feel anything? And people aren't quite sure. And it's been hard to really understand this because sometimes people might come wake up from a coma and tell you, I remembered this or that, but it's hard to know, did they really remember it and experience it? Or was it a dream or what else was going on? It's not very clear, but there was one very clever study that sparked some research in this area. So, um, they had people who were in a coma and originally started with this 23-year-old woman, and they asked her while she was in a coma either to imagine playing tennis or imagine walking through her house. And the reason why they chose these two tasks is because very clear patterns emerge in the brain when people think about these tasks, or they can be pretty certain which one someone is doing in a certain way, which I'll talk about that itself. If you can determine what someone is thinking based on uh, looking at an image of their brain. And so they asked her to do these things and she was unresponsive in that she did not respond in any way physically that they could see. But when they put her in an MRI machine, in an fMRI machine, they were able to see that when she was told to imagine playing tennis, as the book says, there was activity in her premotor cortex while there was activity throughout the network that is engaged during spatial navigation um, in healthy people when she was told to imagine navigating her house. So it was exactly what you would imagine in a healthy person is what we saw in her, meaning that it seems that she was able to respond to what the person was telling her. So the person said, imagine you're playing tennis, and it seems like she was actually doing that, and her brain was showing us that. Now, further research by others found that it might be a small number of people who can do this as far as the proportions go. So another study found only five out of 54 individuals who were in a vegetative state showed evidence of awareness. But nonetheless, it's interesting that we can see that there are some times or for some people, they are still consciously aware and that can affect how we treat them when they're in a coma or what we do or don't do around their, them or with them and also sparks further research in this regard. Now, the book itself is called The New Mind Readers, and he talks about how this is one area where people in the neuroscience field are trying to make progress. Can we decipher what someone is thinking just by looking at a scan of their brain? And so they call this decoding. So can I look at the brain scan and know what someone is thinking about or what they're doing? And they're making some advancements. Definitely, they can't tell you exactly. But there's some research that, for example, they might be able to tell if someone is looking at a face or a non-face object based on looking at their brain, which is kind of interesting and fascinating, but not that we can completely recreate someone's thinking just by looking at their brain. And there's actually people that are trying to do this, and there's science fiction about this, where you can download someone's whole brain into a computer and then in a way their conscious brain would be a 
live, so to speak, or live through this computer, but we seem to be a ways away from that. But anyway, decoding is one area of neuroscience where they are trying to understand or see if we can decode or decipher what someone is thinking or feeling or what's going on just by looking at their brain, which is quite interesting. But I thought the coma story was um, interesting. And then there's a whole chapter he has related to um, the law. And I think this is also very fascinating. And neuroscience is getting introduced into the law, some ways good, some ways not so good. For example, there's some research that shows that the brains of teenagers, of adolescents, aren't quite developed and that the frontal cortex or prefrontal cortex of our brains, which helps us to, uh, it's, we can say it's a seat of executive control where we can moderate our behavior, have impulse control, keep ourselves from doing things. This part of the brain doesn't get developed even almost to the 30s so, until someone reaches their 30s. And this could be part of why teenagers can be so impulsive and make bad decisions. But uh, the Supreme Court of the United States used some of this research to say that because of this, we cannot hold teenagers, and they use the limit of age of 18, which is technically an adult in the United States, that up until that point, we can't give them life in prison for a non-homicide crime because they can't think as clearly, or we're basically saying they don't have as much impulse control as an adult. So we can't try them as an adult, but this was essentially the first time that in the legal system of the United States, neuroscience research was used to, in a way, create some of the law or case law, so to speak. So that was quite interesting. Um, but also, when you look at people's brains, and if we start to understand how their brains affect them and different people who have different injuries or different things going on in their brain affects their behavior, it can create a lot of gray area as to, and no pun intended there because sometimes the brain, we talk about the gray matter, but it can create this gray area of, well, how do we use this information? If we find out that someone has a brain defect that's going to make them more violent, do we give them a more lenient sentence if they're committing a violent crime and got convicted? Or do we keep everyone at the same standard? Or for example, he shares a very, uh, in a way, heartbreaking story, but interesting in a way when we're looking at this type of research of a 40-year-old who was fairly normal, but then all of a sudden developed an interest in pornography, including uh, child pornography. So, of course, very concerning. And this, in a way, came out of nowhere, and he had this for a while, even to the point where he started to make advances sexually, advances on his prepubescent stepdaughter. So, of course, horrible things that he was doing, and then eventually this, his wife became aware and then they went, he got convicted of child molestation and eventually he got an MRI after having a bad headache and they saw that he had this massive tumor in his frontal lobe. They removed the tumor, his sexual urges decreased. So it seems to be a link there. And then a year later, the sexual urges returned, but so had the tumor. So we can't say for sure what was going on, but it seems very likely that the tumor was contributing to these really bad behaviors or this desire that he was having and the behaviors he was doing acting on it. Um, and so in some way we might think, well, does that mean he's not responsible for those urges and those actions? Well, at the same time, if he hurt some child, I don't think any of us would say that would be okay, that he's hurting a child in that way is unacceptable, absolutely. But I think when people hear this story that he was 
in essence normal or didn't have this attraction. Then he got a tumor and had this attraction. The tumor was removed and the attraction went away. We seem to think, well, it wasn't him, it was the tumor. But then this brings up these questions. We might all have differences in our brains that might contribute to different urges and abilities to control or not control certain types of behaviors. So how do we judge people in general, but then also how do we judge them legally? There is a lot of gray area, but he talks about that in the book, which I thought was an interesting discussion. And also related to that, um, looking at lie detection. So we've used, uh, or people have used what we call the polygraph or different types of lie detectors before to determine truth, but we know that it's not a very reliable source. So if you say, oh, I took a lie detection test and it said I was telling the truth to me, that doesn't mean very much. Or we caught someone lying on a lie detector test, it doesn't tell you very much. Now what people are trying to do is use images of the brain. So doing fMRI on people who are talking or saying their story or either saying that they didn't commit a crime or didn't do something and trying to determine, is that person lying or telling the truth? Now, the scientists would agree that we still can't tell if someone is lying or telling the truth based on a scan reliably enough. First of all, the research that has been done in this regard um, has been done in a laboratory. So it's not the same as real world settings where we're talking about life and death or people committing serious crimes. Sometimes they would have people talk about if they took $20 or $10 or different things like that. And they knew they were in a laboratory study. Again, very different uh, standards or different stakes. And even still, we still can't say for sure that someone is telling the truth or lying, but this hasn't stopped some people from already trying to use uh, MRI data or brain imaging in court. So far, it's not getting a lot of support or it hasn't been used, but there's still these companies that are using it and saying it that it should be used um, to, to determine whether someone is telling the truth or not, which I think is unfortunate, but again, shows how sometimes people can um, try to use science in a way to make money and also to push a certain agenda. But what I'm going to do, since I'm at a commercial break and I want to share a few more thoughts about the book, I'll continue after the break. Again, I'm talking about The New Mind Readers by Russell A. Poldrack. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm going to continue the discussion on the book, The New Mind Readers, What Neuroimaging Can and Cannot Reveal About Our Thoughts by Russell A. Poldrack. Uh, before the break, I talked about how people are trying to use fMRI scans for lie detection and to in a way, assert their innocence, even in court of law, but it's still not accepted yet, but people are really pushing for that. And so, as I mentioned throughout the book, uh, Russell A. Poldrack talks about neuroscience and where the science is and where it's going and lots of different factors, but also there's a sprinkling of giving you some skepticism or giving you some tools to be aware of what you're reading and learning when it comes to neuroscience, because there is a lot of clickbait and not even just clickbait in these ways of like, you know, people creating a story, but reputable or at least reputable in some ways, like the New York Times, for example, he talks about in the op-ed section a few times where there's been articles that he was really upset to see because they presented some uh, neuroscience or some 
things related to neuroscience, but someone made some very extreme claims that were not really what the science was supporting. So, for example, he talks about a story, um, an article that was in the New York Times uh, op-ed where it was talking about you love your iPhone literally, which, of course, is going to grab a lot of attention, but it was talking about how looking at how people's brains responded to getting messages or alerts on their phones was similar to the feeling of love and compassion. And that's what the article was talking about. Now, that conclusion seems really interesting. It might raise eyebrows for lots of people when you hear it. But uh, the author himself, along with 44 of his colleagues, uh, pointed out in a letter to the editor of the New York Times that this is not what the science is suggesting or science is saying. It's not that clear to just say, well, because this part of the brain was active and it's active during love and compassion, then that means these people felt love and compassion for their phones and it was an addiction. It was what the author was saying. And so uh, he makes it very clear that we have to be very wary of this type of research. So to begin with, even I see it a lot and it's a blurry line because sometimes people will say this part of the brain is used in this activity or has this function, but really usually you can't say that. It has to be more of a, uh, we see this pattern or we've noticed this pattern, but we can't say this part of the brain is this. It's not that modulated that we can say this is your love part of the brain, this is your thinking part, this is a feeling part. It does seem like almost any activity that we do, whether that's actual physical activity or thinking, feeling, involves many different regions of the brain connected together. It's not just about one part doing one action. It's not that simplified. But sometimes articles like this can do that. They can say, well, we're seeing this part of the brain light up and this part of the brain lights up, for example, in love. So this means people love their iPhone. Whereas, as they point out, um, that part of the brain, the insular cortex, is active in as many as one-third of all brain imaging studies. So one-third of the time you're going to see that part of the brain active. So you can't say because we saw it active here, it means love and compassion. So making that jump is definitely a huge leap and one that's irresponsible for a scientist to make. But then also we as consumers of science have to be mindful of what we're reading. And it's very easy to get swept up in these things, these types of studies. I remember hearing, even when I was maybe not a kid, but it's been a while, things like chocolate is gives you the same feeling as love, for example, or whatever that means. But it sounds really exciting, and people really get interested in hearing that kind of a, um, research. And, of course, you're going to share it and share that fact, or you think it's a fact, with other people, but it's just not really true. Although I don't actually know much about that research, but it just doesn't make sense to me uh, to be able to say that confidently. It might trigger similar parts of the brain, but to say it makes you feel love or something like that is a very big jump. So we have to be aware of things, especially when people say things like, this proves this. Usually that's not the case. Uh, most scientists won't use the word prove because science is a, a, a body of knowledge that's getting collected. It's not that you find some truth so we can say this is the fact. For now, it's how we might understand something. It's what we might know about something as far as we can know it now. But to say this proves this, you rarely will hear a scientist talk in that way unless they have an agenda, unless they're trying to make money, unless they're trying to sell either something to make money or an idea. They won't talk in that way most of the time. And so also, if, as I was mentioning, if you see 
neuroscience research and it's saying this is the this part of the brain, you should be a little bit skeptical of that too because it's not that clear black and white. And uh, neuroscience is an incredible field, one that I am very fascinated by and you probably will notice on this show, I'll read a lot of books in that field because I think it's really interesting and we're understanding the brain more and more. But as he points out in this book, there's still a lot, a lot, a lot that we don't know. And there's still a lot that we thought we would know by this time, but we don't. So a lot of people thought once they created fMRIs and were able to study the brain and its activity, oh, we're going to figure out the brain in a few years. And so people made a lot of bold predictions that turned out not to be true. Um, it's funny to say bold because uh, bold predictions because bold is actually the term they use or the acronym for how they measure the blood flow in the brain when they're doing fMRI. But people made a lot of bold predictions that by this year, we're going to know the whole brain or know all the diseases or know this or that. And it wasn't true. Just like how people thought once we had the whole human genome figured out, we would figure out all the diseases and the whole everything very quickly. And we're still not there. It appears that the human genome and also the human brain or the human connectome is very complex, complicated, and intricate, and we're not just going to figure it out so quickly. So they are making advances. They are figuring things out that they didn't know before, but we have to be aware of trying to jump to some conclusions that we can't jump to yet. Now, he also has a chapter on mental illness, which was interesting. And so imaging mental illness is a very important field because we're trying to understand the illnesses better and also that can help us uh, create better treatments for the illnesses so it's very important but even with that it's not that we have this clear cut okay this is what all depressed brains look like this is what every schizophrenic brain looks like this is what every OCD brain looks like they at times will find patterns but it's not so clear and actually what they tend to find which is interesting is that the brains of people who have serious illnesses like depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia, they show differences in brain function that is similar to each other. So it's different from what we'd consider healthy people, but the differences between them, things like depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia, they themselves are not that different from each other. It almost appears that there's some dysfunctions that are happening that are causing these different illnesses, but they sometimes are similar dysfunctions. So it's not quite clear um, how to differentiate them from one another, but we are seeing some patterns that might tell us, okay, something is not quite right in the brain functioning. But again, it's very much too early to say what exactly that is. And he talks about how understanding the brains better and seeing that, okay, well, maybe mental illnesses are brain diseases. Uh, that can be helpful, but it's also a mixed bag because for some people, when you tell them it's a brain disease, that you have an issue in your brain, it can make them feel better. Okay, good. It's not me or I have some personal weakness of myself in my character. There's something really going on in my brain and that can feel good. But for other people and uh, the stigma that they might get is that actually makes them feel worse. Somehow telling them that, oh, you're just messed up or you're weaker. There's a problem in your brain. So that can also be the conclusion that some people get to, but really it's probably a mix in some ways it's good and some it's bad and even the stigma of mental illness they've actually seen that this is what's happening people in some ways are more accepting of people having mental illness but actually some research has found that people um, are less likely to want a mentally ill person to be their neighbor or co-worker 
So the stigma has gone down in some ways, but in some other ways it has not. And so similarly, when we understand the brain better and we see there's brain dysfunction or brain illnesses, we see that it could be good in some ways and also bad. And, and it's interesting to look at the complexity or the nuance of that discussion. Um, also, when it comes to brain illnesses or mental illnesses, what we tend to find is that it's not always one neurotransmitter is deficient or one part of the brain is the problem. In a lot of mental illnesses, it looks like the connectivity is an issue, that there's either an inflexibility or not as much connection in brains and parts of the brain, and that could be leading to the mental illnesses. And he also talked about how the way we study mental illness needs to change. So there's the book in America called the, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which has essentially a list of all the different psychiatric illnesses. And basically the way we diagnose is by looking at a checklist of symptoms. And if you have enough symptoms on that checklist, you get that diagnosis. But what we see is that people can have very different um, symptoms, but still get the same label. And maybe this is a problem. So if you have someone who's depressed, who has a low mood and is suicidal and is gaining weight and sleeping more, that might be very different from someone who has low motivation, low mood, and uh, their sleep and weight patterns are the opposite. So, But we might call them both depressed and then try to compare their brains or give them the same treatment, and that might not be good. So there is a movement in psychiatry or in some of the research that's being done to not focus so much on just the diagnoses, but to focus on the symptoms because there might be a better way of looking at dysfunction in specific ways rather than these labels that we're giving to people and that the diagnoses might actually be hurting the research and not helping. So I really enjoyed this book and would highly recommend it to anyone who wants to get an idea of neuroscience, where the field is now, how it started in the history of different aspects of imaging and even the science of the imaging. I thought that was, again, very interesting to understand how people are measuring the brain and what's going on. And again, it, it can be humbling sometimes when you read these types of studies, first of all, uh, or these types of books, because you realize how much you don't understand. But then you also see how much the scientists are trying to figure out or work with, or that as much as we might think when we see a brain image, that means there's some kind of truth there and what it's telling us, but they're trying to piece a lot of things together to give us that image. And I think there's research that shows that whenever people put charts or images, we automatically think the study is more important or credible. So people have added random images that aren't even related to the study uh, to an article, and it makes people rate it as more credible. We just think, okay, there's more science behind it because some image is there. So again, we take our science with a grain of salt. We recognize that they are doing the best they can with the technology that they have. And that's also a theme that comes up in the book. We can only understand as much as our technology or our tools can tell us. If we had better tools, we could measure the brain even better. But up to now, this obviously is as good as we can do it. They're still advancing. So there's advances being made on the technological level and the scientific level and also in the theories. But they all go together hand in hand in this book did a great job of giving you that history. So that was the new Mind Readers, What Neuroimaging Can and Cannot Reveal About Our Thoughts by Russell A. Poldrack. All right, going into our last commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Duakwi. We'll be right back.
back. So in this last segment, I wanted to talk about something that in a way relates to the book that I was just talking about, The New Mind Readers by Russell A. Poldrack. When I was talking about being aware of the science that we consume and the conclusions we make and take from those types of articles and the research that we read. And so related to that, I wanted to talk about how we can at times look for answers and sometimes look for answers in places that we probably shouldn't or look for types of answers that we shouldn't be looking for. So let me get into that and explain what I mean. So we live, or life itself, is uncertain. Life is difficult. Life has challenges. Every aspect of our life is going to have challenges, and really no part of our life is easy. But we wish or we oftentimes have this desire for things to be easy. And so because of that, we are oftentimes looking for people to give us easy answers and easy solutions. Actually, this reminds me of a meme I saw one of my friends who's a doctor put that, you know, with a lot of his patients, he tells them, you know, if you exercise, if you sleep better, you eat better, a lot of these health issues you're dealing with will go away. And people say, yeah, 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 forget all that. Just give me some medicine, you know? So people oftentimes don't want to do the hard work it takes to be healthy, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally, or in their relationships or in their career, whatever it is, we're looking for quick fixes because those are easier. We're looking for that and it it feels a lot better to say, oh, you know what? That thing that you think is so hard, it's actually so easy. So because of this, unfortunately, we are very often drawn to people who tell us they have easy solutions to these hard problems, the hard problems of life and of living. And that's why you'll see so many of these people and groups become so successful. If you say, oh, relationships, they're so easy. If you follow my five-step easy guide, you're going to have a perfect relationship and never have to worry again. Your life is going to be so good. You're going to get the love you've always wanted and never have to worry about anything. And people love that. They get drawn to that. That sounds so exciting. And so we expect to get these results. We want to get these results. We're so hopeful. And there's always people out there ready to sell you on them. And so just like I was saying, if you see science research and it's saying, uh, or an article about research and it's saying this has been proven or something that's too good to be true or too simplified, just know that it probably is. And if you hear someone talking about life advice and they say it in that same way, well, you should know that that's also probably too good to be true. And the reality is we have to accept that most things in life are very hard. They're not going to be easy. If you want to have a good romantic relationship, it not, it won't be easy. It can't be easy. If you want to be happy in your career, it's not going to be easy or be easy all the time. But we want that. There is a way that we like to tap into this magical thinking in our childhood that makes things so easy and fun and good. And we want that. It's almost like we're looking for the tooth fairy or Santa Claus to come and make things good and make us happy and make us feel good. And so that's why it's so easy to, for people to turn into these kind of like prophets or, uh, you know, like the tooth fairy or Santa Claus who have these treats and have these secrets. And we're so ready to look for them and look to them. 
So when someone shows up and says, I have all the answers, I know the secrets to life, I know the secrets to relationships, even as I'm saying it right now, I'm sure for some people it can feel kind of exciting or interesting or make them think, ooh, is, there, is, is that real? Does someone have that? We're looking for that. We want that. And it would be so great. It sounds nice. I'm not going to lie. It would be nice if we can have those things, but we have to realize that that's not reality. That's not real life. And we have to be willing to accept the challenges of life. So I really want people to be aware of this because especially now with the internet, there's so many people posting videos and articles and blogs and different things trying to sell you this. Sometimes they're selling you the idea because they have a class or a course or um, some way that they charge you for a subscription or they want to get your attention and your get the fame, which itself might bring those things later on. But there's a lot of those things out there and you have to be ready to understand that even though there's an appeal, it can feel so good for someone to tell you, you know that thing you're so worried about, I can solve it for you in three easy steps. That sounds great. I mean, who wouldn't want that if it was real? But realizing that it's not real is a painful um, reality to accept but it is our reality. And if we stay out of touch with our reality, we can't actually have a good life. And so when you see people who do these types of seminars or courses or um, subscribe to some of these things online at times, you'll see this feeling you can almost get, for me at least, when I look at people who've done these types of things in different ways or tell you that, oh, I took this relationship class and now my relationship is easy, you feel an inauthenticity, at least I have this experience, where it doesn't feel very genuine. Like they're just smiling to smile because smiling is good because happiness is good and sadness is bad. Not because they genuinely feel good about themselves and about life. So they've been told that it's good to be happy and now they're trying to be happy and they feel happy and they're around each other and they act happy, but you don't really feel like people are genuinely happy. And even this itself, something I've talked a lot, of, a lot about the show, for me, happiness is very overrated. By that, I don't mean that it's bad to feel good, but I mean happiness in the way that a lot of people describe it or define it, meaning that just feeling good and being happy and joyous, or I actually hate this hashtag, no bad days. I don't know if you've heard that before, but some people will post something about their life and they put no bad days, meaning that every day is good. Every day they are happy. Every day is a good day and sounds nice. Again, I can't say it doesn't sound good. And I think there is something to be said about trying to be positive and be grateful. I think those are actually very important things. But to have this mindset that you have no bad days, that everything is always good, to me is not realistic and it's not part of having a real life and a meaningful life. So to me, happiness is overrated in the sense of trying to just feel good. If you Use that as your compass. Do the things that feel good and make me feel happy in the moment in that way. You probably won't live a very fulfilling life. You won't do a lot of meaningful things. Because, for example, if you're with your partner and you need to have a serious but awkward and difficult conversation, well, if you want to just feel good in that moment, you're not going to have that conversation. It's a lot easier to just keep watching TV or listen to music or whatever it is you were doing before 
one of you brought up the conversation or somehow came up. Or if you want to help people who are less fortunate, sometimes being around people in a bad situation, it could bring you down a little bit. But to me, that's living a very meaningful life to help people and to ignore those situations is actually very bad. And so if you want to actually be close to the world and close to the people of the world, you have to accept feeling down and feeling bad some of the times. The world is going to make you sad sometimes. That's just the reality of the world if you want to be connected to it. Now, if you want to just be in the sky and be happy every day and unicorns and rainbows and feel so good, that's fine, but you're not going to be very connected to the actual real world. So if we use as our compass what feels happy and good in the moment, that can be very misleading and lead us towards a very empty and unfulfilled life. For me, I'm more focused on contentment and fulfillment with our life rather than just happiness. Am I living a life that feels good in the sense that I feel like I'm doing good things, doing the right things? I'm making priorities in my life for things that are important. I'm doing all the things I want. I'm actually using my abilities, my talents, my skills, my time in a way that feels good to me, that feels like it's the right way of living. Those values are important. If we're guided by values, that's good. If we're guided by just trying to feel happy and good, that's a problem. And that's unfortunately what I see with a lot of what you see out there when it comes to self-help and self-improvement. It's this push for just trying to feel good in the moment for everything to be amazing, for me to think I'm amazing and everything's amazing all the time. And it sounds good on paper in a way, and it can sound good as a fantasy or a dream, but it's not very realistic. We have to be connected to more than just that feeling of happiness in that moment. And for me, one of the biggest signs and markers of mental health is our ability to tolerate what we consider the negative feelings things like sadness. If I can't ever be sad, I'm going to have a very hard time living a meaningful life because anything I want to do that's important, just living as a human being is sometimes going to involve being sad. And if I can't tolerate that, I'm going to try everything I can to get away from it, which means either avoiding the problems, denying the problems, or using things like drugs and alcohol or whatever else to just get away from the feelings. And those are all bad things. Those aren't good things. So we have to be able to tolerate sadness, to tolerate not being okay. And so for me, I sometimes hear people say, well, can't you just be happy all the time? Isn't that possible? Now, theoretically, maybe, but not really. So when someone tells me I'm actually happy all the time, to me, you might say, well, why don't you believe them? But when I hear that, it's almost as if someone told me, you know what? I never sleep. I don't get tired. I actually never sleep. So, you know, everyone else is sleeping, but no, no bad days or no bed days. Maybe is how you can say it. I'm always feeling energized. I don't need, and you might say, of course, no one would believe that, but that's how I feel when someone tells me they're always feeling good and every day is perfect and beautiful and gorgeous and outstanding. It just doesn't feel very genuine and doesn't feel real. You're going to be tired sometimes and you're going to be down sometimes. And that's part of being a human being. So if you're wanting to buy a book, listening to a podcast. You listen to me. If you're listening to me and you feel like I'm making things seem too easy, I really hope you will tell me. Maybe sometimes I can be uh, guilty of that as well. And so I have to be mindful of that. But if you hear someone giving a talk, 
you're reading a book, if it's a friend, whoever it is, and they're making things seem too easy. They're trying to sell you on something being so simple and telling you they have the answers. I just want you to be very cautious of that. Be very mindful of what's happening. Is it really that you believe them because there's something really there? Or is it the child part of us that wishes something could be so simple, that wishes that things didn't have to be so hard? Because things are hard sometimes, but that's life. So don't get so sucked into these types of thinking. Anytime someone tells you, I've got the answers, take a second to see, okay, what do they have to say? And I really like what Eric Fromm said when it comes to even reading a book, where he said that if you're reading a book, it shouldn't be a passive type of experience. So that was about um, to have or to be. So if you're being, if you're being active, you are actually having a conversation with the author. And so if you're listening to me, I hope you're having a conversation. You're in the mode of being, meaning that you're listening to me, sometimes questioning me, hopefully sometimes agreeing with me, but also disagreeing with me. I even can listen to things I said a few years ago, and I might not agree with everything I said. I might agree, might listen to everything I say today and think, well, there's some parts of it I could say differently. And so we have this tendency to want to build people up because we think, well, if they're this all-knowing person, if there's someone who knows everything about everything or knows everything about some topic, then I don't have to think anymore. And that feels really good. It feels good not to have to think, not to have to try to figure things out. Again, it would be nice if things would be that easy and that simple that someone had all the answers for us, but they don't. And so whoever you're listening to, remember that at the end, you're going to have to listen to yourself and to make sure you think for yourself. And actually, when it comes to listening to yourself, you probably won't be able to listen to me too much more because I think I'm starting to lose my voice um, at the end of the show tonight, but I'll try to make it through the next two minutes or so. But at the end, you have to make sure you listen to yourself no matter what. And just a reminder, life is hard, but that's life. Life is beautiful because it has those challenges. When you look at a relationship, what makes it beautiful is not just the good moments, but the fact that two people went through hard times together. What makes uh, any accomplishment meaningful is that it was difficult at times. If it was easy every step of the way, it wouldn't really mean that much. Anything that's worth doing is going to be hard sometimes. And we have to accept that and be ready for that. Life is beautiful, but life is hard. And when you look for answers, be aware that any answer that seems too good to be true probably is. Any answer that makes it seem like some thing in life is very simple is probably trying to sell you themselves or sell you something. And we have to be aware that it's easy to want that, but we have to not buy into that and to remember that our life is worth living because of those challenges and those difficulties. So I'm going to wrap up the show because my throat is wrapping it up for me, but I'll remind you that the book of the week for this week is Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story by Angela Saini. And sometimes people do send me some recommendations for books. I'm always looking for 
recommendations, and they don't always have to be exactly psychology-related or psychology topics. They can be in related fields that you think might be interesting for me to talk about, but I do appreciate the people who have sent in books even, but even sent in book requests either on my Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. I do take a look at those and sometimes make a list of books I will buy sometime soon, so thank you to everyone for those recommendations. But I'm going to wrap up the show for tonight. Thank you to Amir here in the studio as always. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dawakwi. Have a wonderful night. 94.7 KTWV HD3 Los Angeles.